I want you to imagine for just a moment, as you turn your Bibles to 1 Peter, I want you to imagine that you were writing a letter to a group of Christians. A group of Christians who were experiencing deep suffering because of their faith in Jesus and desire to live for the glory of God. They're suffering intensely. And so after your main greeting, for us, the way that we write our letters, it normally starts, Dear so-and-so. We saw last week his his introduction, his greeting is a little bit longer, two verses there in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. But then when you think about that opening paragraph, you're writing to people who are hurting, what would you say to begin with? How would you start that first paragraph of your letter? Maybe you would say, I want you to know that I'm thinking about you. Or maybe you would say, I want you to know that my heart, my heart breaks for you. I, I hurt for, for you. Maybe you would say, I, I, want, I just want to write this to encourage you. Or maybe as you picture them suffering, you would say just these three powerful words to begin with. I love you. Or, or perhaps you might say, I've heard about your struggles and I want you to know that I am praying for you. Or maybe another possibility would be that you would start and say, I'm really not sure what to say, but I want you to know that I'm here for you. Let's make it a little more personal. Maybe it's not a letter, but someone knocks on your door and it's a a friend and they're, they're down and they're discouraged. Maybe you would say some of those similar things. I'm here for you. I love you. What can I do to encourage you? But probably you're not going to open that door. You're, you're probably not going to write your opening words of your first paragraph to, paragraph to someone who is hurting and say, praise God. We, we would probably think that's kind of cruel and inconsiderate, right? For someone who is hurting to come to us or we have an opportunity to send a letter to them and we start by saying, praise the Lord. And yet that's exactly how Peter opens up the main body of this letter as he writes to hurting Christians. He starts with praise. He starts with praise. Why would he do that? Well, I think that praising God serves as the foundation, the starting point for living as Christians in a fallen world. Peter, as he writes this letter, he's going to spend a good deal of time instructing them on how to live life as Christians in a fallen world. But he knows, rightfully so, as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, that a life lived for the glory of God begins with a life focused on praising God for who he is and for what he has done. The moment that we lose sight of the greatness of God and the mighty works he has done for us, we will cease praising God and cease then living for God. Think about it. It's really hard to reject God's will and live for the world while you're at the same time praising God for who he is and for what he's done. It's just hard to live for God and praise him at the same time. In fact, the opposite is true. When we find ourselves not living for God, probably we have ceased worshiping him 
We've ceased to remember who he is and what he has done. Praise must and will serve as the foundation for the life of an elect exile of God. That's what we looked at last week. If you want to glance back up to verse 1 and 2, we talked in length about that phrase, elect exiles, which is what Peter calls these Christians to whom he is writing. And we said that being an elect exile means that God has chosen us to belong to him while not belonging to the world, even though we still live in this world. Today, we want to move into the main body of this letter. And as we do, we're going to see Peter begin with a call to praise God. Now, if you'll look at verses 3 through 12, if you look at verses 3 through 12, just kind of scan your eyes through that and you'll probably see a lot of periods in your Bible that verses 3 through 12 is broken up into numerous sentences. In fact, in the original language in the Greek, verses 3 through 12 in our Bible is one long sentence in the Greek. It, you, ever, you, you remember your, your English class, your grammar class? And what was one of the most important things you learned when writing? Don't write run-on sentences. You remember that? We often speak in run-on sentences, but we're not supposed to write in run-on sentences. I don't know if, I don't know if Peter, uh, maybe he skipped out on school that day, because he opens this letter, the body of this letter, with one long sentence in the Greek. Now, that would be really confusing for us in the English to understand, and so our translators have put it in sentence form for us to help us understand um, exactly what Peter is saying. We're going to break this section up over the next few weeks, and, um, and we're going to look at verses 3 through 5 today, and then verses 6 through 9, and then verses 10 through 12. So why would we take this, uh, this opening sentence, this one sentence, and break it into three parts? Why not look at it all at one time? Well, we could, but in the words of one writer who said this just about verses 3 through 5, he said, It will take us a long time to appropriate the riches of this passage, for there are few passages in the New Testament where more of the great fundamental Christian ideas and conceptions meet and come together. He said that just about verses 3 through 5. And so I thought it would be appropriate for us just to spend our time this morning unpacking verses 3 through 5 of 1 Peter chapter 1. And so if you'll follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Would you pray with me? Father, open up our hearts to your word. Help us to put it into practice in our lives. Father, may you be honored and glorified as we study these rich, rich verses this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We can summarize this first first section this way. We should praise God for giving us new life in Christ. We should praise God for giving us new life in Christ. If you notice how how Peter starts out this this verse in verse three, he says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ to bless God means to praise God. Now, 
when we think about being blessed by God, we're often thinking about getting things, even if they're right things like getting salvation, getting forgiveness of our sins, getting an unending joy and peace in our hearts. Well, the blessing that we give to God is a little bit different because what what do we have to give to God? He has all kinds of things that he could give to us that we need from him. But when Peter says, blessed be God, he's not saying, oh, we want to we want to shower God with blessings because he's in need of our blessings. That's not what he means. It's just another way of saying, praise the Lord, praise God. We worship him for who he is and for what he has done. He starts out this opening paragraph, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a call to praise, but it's not just a call to praise some generic God, some higher power. I want you to notice the very Christian wording that is used. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what separates us from from other religions and even from a, a religion that that has similar origins as ours, and that would be Judaism. What sets Christianity apart as far as our worship of God is that we worship the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that He is the Messiah and that He is God. I want you to compare that blessing, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, with um, a blessing found in the Jewish prayer book that is used for Jews in the armed forces of the United States. It reads this. Here's the here's this prayer of blessing. Speedily cause the offspring of David, thy servant, to flourish and let his horn be exalted by thy salvation because we wait for thy salvation all the day. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who causest the horn of salvation to flourish. In one sense, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. It just doesn't go far enough. We get to be more specific in our prayer of blessing as Christians because we know who the horn of salvation is. We know who the offspring of David is. We know who the servant of God is who would come and cause salvation to flourish in us. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And so we can say, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we pray, when we sing, we want it to be centered upon Jesus. I love when I sing songs and I get to say the name of Jesus. Because that sets that sets what I'm singing apart from what anybody else in the world can sing. Any other belief system. When we sing about Jesus, only Christians do that because we believe that he is the one who has come and paid the price for our sins. This praise specifically identifies Jesus as Lord and Christ. He is the divine ruler and he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. Even Peter himself made this declaration at Pentecost. You know, that day back in Acts chapter two. And there's Jews gathered from many different nations and Peter stands up and filled with the Holy Spirit. He boldly proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ. And when he finishes that sermon, he says this. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. As Christians, we get to worship the Messiah, by name. 
We know who he is. We know who the Christ is. He is Jesus and no other. His name is Jesus and we worship him. We must center our worship on Jesus Christ. But then Peter moves from this kind of opening statement of blessing to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ to some information, some truths, some rich spiritual truths about what it means to have new life in Christ. The first thing he calls us to praise God for is this new life. So I want to share with you four truths concerning our new life in Christ that should lead us to praise God. If you're finding it difficult to give God honor and glory in whatever circumstance you may have found yourself in as you walk into this place today, pay attention to these four truths. Hang on to them. Understand what the text says about this new life. And I can promise you, you will walk out of here worshiping the Lord if he has control of your heart. These four things will lead us to praise God. Number one is this. Our new life is a result of God acting out of his mercy. Our new life is a result of God acting out of his mercy. Verse 3 goes on and says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Let me read that one more time. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Where is the emphasis placed in that in that verse and that those phrases? Who is the emphasis placed on? It's placed on God, right? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. And I think that's one of Peter's main points as he begins to talk about this incredible new life that we have. The emphasis is not on us. The emphasis is on God. If the emphasis was on us, he would be talking about sin. Because that's what characterizes you and me. If the emphasis was on us, who will be talking about our rebellion against our Creator. Because that's what we do with the lives that He has given us. If the emphasis was on us, He would have to talk about how we are separated from God for all of eternity unless God intervenes. Because sin always separates us from God. But the emphasis is on God. And so we get good news here. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. I love this word mercy. We could give a, a simple definition to say it's not getting what you deserve. It's not getting what you deserve. Do you ever deserve to get in trouble for something and somehow you didn't get in trouble for it? You don't have to say it out loud. Probably the reason you didn't get in trouble is because nobody found out about it, right? That's not really mercy. Mercy is when you, you do get caught, but you don't get that punishment that you deserve. But mercy is so much, so much richer of a word in, in, in Scripture. We go to the Old Testament, and we, and we find this other word, and it's translated different ways in the, uh, from the Hebrew text in the Old Testament, but it's a word that, that, that conveys this, this thought of mercy. We can go to Exodus chapter 34, and here God, God is revealing himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, and he says that the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That is the that is the word picture that Peter has in mind when he says, according to his great mercy. Oftentimes we see in Scripture this in the Old Testament word loving kindness or or faithful love. It's a covenant love of God. It's a, it's a it's a it's an act that comes with a promise. For God says, I promise to put my love on you. And I promise to rescue you from you. And I promise to join you to myself. And we see the connection back to verse 1 with that word, elect. But, but what is what is God's character of mercy result in for us? It says that He has caused us to be born again. He has caused us to be born again. This word in the Greek can be translated begetting. Begetting. We, we often think about that with John 3.16. It's a little bit different word, though. In fact, this word for begetting or causing to be born again is only found two times in Scripture, and both times are in 1 Peter. One here in 1 Peter chapter 3, and the other in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. This word born again makes us think back to that time in the life of Jesus. Where one night this man called Nicodemus came to him. And Nicodemus wanted to know, what is it, how, do you, how do you become a part of the kingdom? What, is it, what does that mean? What does that look like? He trusted that, that Jesus would have the right information about this. And so Nicodemus came and said, what, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? And Jesus doesn't tell him anything that he has to do. He tells him something that God has to do in Nicodemus. He says, you must be born again. And we know Nicodemus got confused. He said, born again how can i enter back into my mother's womb again and be born a second time and and nicodemus was missing the point jesus was talking about this rebirth of his heart where god would actually come in and change nicodemus from the inside out nicodemus wanted to know what what do i need to do and jesus said it's not what you need to do it's what god needs to do in you because you can't save yourself You must be born again. And here we have Peter calling us to worship God for this new life. He has caused us to be born again. You say, how do I how does that happen, though, in my life? If I come to church enough times, then will God one one time I walk through the doors of the church building and I'll I'll be born again. Do I need to say a certain prayer and then I'll be born again? Do I need to read some certain passage in the Bible? Hey, maybe, maybe I'll even memorize some and then I'll be born again. No. The way Scripture calls us to be born again is by telling God that there's nothing that we could do to earn His love in our lives and telling God that we trust that He has done everything necessary to cause us to be born again when He sent His Son to die on the cross to pay the price for our sins. And then when His Son rose up from the grave, conquering sin and Satan and death forever and ever and ever, the word that the Bible uses for that is faith. And we're going to see it in, in come, that word faith in coming weeks multiple times in this passage. Say, how can I be born again? It's by trusting that you can't do anything, but that Jesus has done everything that is necessary for you to be saved. Maybe today you need to be born again. Maybe that's why God has you here in this place today, so that you could hear his word call you to be born again, call you to new life.
We must believe the good news of Jesus Christ. What happens when we're born again? Well, it means that we are a new creation. Paul writes and says, the old is gone and the new has come. I love what one writer said about this phrase, born again. He said, when a man becomes a Christian, there comes into his life a change so radical and so decisive that he can only be said to be born again. He has become so different and life has become so different that everything is so new that the only thing that can be said is that life has begun all over again. I love that. I love that because I know that's true of me. That's true of me. My life began anew when I trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior. And many of you have experienced that very same thing. You would say, I am not who I once was. Praise God. And if you can't say that, then my plea for you is that you would repent of your sin and trust in Jesus and allow Him to cause you to be born again. And then you too will know what it means to say the old is gone and the new has come. That's the first truth about this new life. We praise God for acting out of His mercy. We don't deserve it. But he's graciously given it to us. Truth number two. In fact, truth number two and truth number three go together because they further describe what it means to be born again. To be born again. We find this phrase at the end of verse three. We are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Truth number two, our new life gives us a hope that is alive because Jesus is alive. Our new hope gives uh, new life gives us a hope that is alive because Jesus is alive. Notice how he describes this being born again, this new life. We are born again to what? To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I had the privilege of um, spending this past week with our youth at youth camp and song that we sang throughout the week uh, spoke about this living hope. And it was just. It was so good to stand there with them and and with others worshiping God and and crying out in praise that we are grateful for a living hope that he has placed inside of us. What is a living hope? Well, it's not a hope like I hope it doesn't rain while I'm on vacation. Right. We say that probably right. We want it to rain all summer, except when we go on vacation. We don't want it rain rain in that spot. We pray, Lord, please don't let it rain on us while I'm on vacation. Can you imagine living somewhere where people come and they don't want it to, they come there for vacation? And so all all summer long, there are all these vacationers praying that it's not going to rain where you live? That's, That's kind of cruel, isn't it? You should think about the people that live in the place where you vacation. But it's not that kind of hope. It's not, I hope it doesn't rain while I'm on vacation. That's really a wish. That's just a wish that you really don't have any control over. This living hope is a sure hope. It's a living hope. It's a hope in something that is guaranteed because it has already been accomplished. It's a living hope. It's a sure hope because it's a hope in something that has already been accomplished. Our hope is that we will defeat death and live forever with God. And that's the longing of our hearts. If there's one thing that our hearts long to escape, it is death. And so the greatest hope in all of life is to live knowing that I don't have to fear 
eternal death. I don't have to fear punishment for my sins. But certainly I haven't accomplished that and certainly you haven't. and Certainly we never would be able to accomplish that, but it actually has been accomplished. How do we know that? Because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. He is alive and therefore our hope is alive. Peter writes of a sure hope, one author says, a hope that holds the future in the present because it is anchored in the past. I love that. It's a hope that that holds the future in the present. We know what is coming for us as believers in Christ. We know that it is heaven. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But I get to hold on to that right now. I don't just get to wish that one day it would happen. I get to hold on to that hope and it becomes even a present reality right now. If God's kingdom is birthed in my heart, the peace and joy that comes with knowing that. Why can I hold on to something that's in the future right now in the present? It's because that hope is anchored in the past, in the past event of that stone rolling away from the tomb. And for the first time ever, someone coming out by his own power. Certainly there were people who had risen from the dead before, but that was because they had been raised by someone else. You think about Lazarus, but he didn't rise on his own. Jesus had to call him out of the grave. Who raised Jesus? Jesus. He defeated death. That was a real event in history. Because that really happened in the the past, our future can be enjoyed as a present reality. The importance of the resurrection is vital in the lives of us as Christians. True, it was on the cross where Jesus paid the price for our sin. But it was through his resurrection where he proved that what he did on the cross was enough. If Jesus had stayed in the tomb, then his sacrifice would not have meant life for us. But because he rose from the dead, when you place your faith in Jesus and trust what he did on the cross, you will be guaranteed this new born again life that Peter is calling us to praise God for. Whenever trials come your way. Whenever the struggles of living for Christ in a fallen world hit you square in the face. You remember that the tomb is empty. And because of that, you live each day, if you're a Christian, with a living hope. That hope actively helps push aside doubt and despair as you remember that what happened to Christ will one day happen to you because God has caused you to be born again to this living hope. But he doesn't just describe this born again life as a living hope. But in verse four, he gives us another phrase. Verse three, to a living hope. Verse four, to an inheritance. And so the third truth that we see about our new life is this. Our new life gives us an inheritance that is eternal because it is kept in heaven. Our new life gives us an inheritance that is eternal because it is kept in heaven. 
Here is that that future hope that we get to hold on to right now, because in the past, Jesus conquered death. This hope is that we would have an inheritance one day, that we have an inheritance one day, that this inheritance is eternal because we're not in charge of holding on to it. It is actually being kept and preserved for us in heaven. Notice, notice how he describes this inheritance. It says we've been born again, one, to a living hope, and two, verse four, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. I'm so glad that God keeps my inheritance for me in heaven. If he gave it to me, I'd probably lose it. I'd misplace it. We lose stuff all the time. We lose things that are important to us. Right? We lose our keys. And then we realize that they were in our pocket. We do, we do crazy things like that. We lose stuff. Yesterday I lost my socks. I had just taken them off. I didn't know where I'd put them. I left them outside on the porch. I found them a little while later. But I was scratching my head going... Where did I put my socks? I couldn't remember. I was walking all around the house looking for my socks. I had just taken them off. They were sitting right outside on the porch. I can't even keep up with my socks. How could I keep up with something as, as, as incredible as an inheritance? Yes, I would place more value on the inheritance, but it's too big for me to hold on to. And I'm too fallible to hold on to something so grand. I still make mistakes, even as a Christian. Even as someone who's been born again, I still sin. And if it were up to me to hold on to my inheritance, certainly I would lose it. But it's not up to me because I am not the one ultimately responsible for my salvation. God is the one ultimately responsible. We looked at that last week with the word elect. We see that this week in, in this phrase. He has caused us to be born again because salvation is of the Lord. And he's the one who gives it to me. And that also means he's the one who protects it for me. And therefore, my inheritance is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. In fact, this idea of an inheritance being given to God's people is not something that we just find in the New Testament. We see it in the Old Testament as well. Think about the people of God, the children of Israel. They were promised a land. They were promised a promised land. We read about it in Joshua Joshua chapter 11, verse 23, we find these words. And Joshua gave it, it's talking about the land, gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. This comes after the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and they come up and they cross the Jordan River, they conquer Jericho, they go into the promised land, and they conquer their enemies. We'll come back to that in a minute. And, and, and they have peace in the land for a little while. And that was their inheritance. But here's the problem. That inheritance wasn't imperishable. This word imperishable really refers to, to being able to withstand an army coming in. In other words, it says that our inheritance is imperishable. That means no enemy will destroy it. Unfortunately, that wasn't true for the inheritance given to the Israelites. For time and time again, enemies came in. Because remember I said, I'll come back to that. They didn't actually conquer all their enemies like they were supposed to. So that inheritance was perishable. And because they didn't conquer their enemies. And those nations around them and in the midst of them worshiped false gods. Their inheritance was constantly polluted. By the worship of false gods. It wasn't 
undefiled. Because that land belongs to a world that is passing away. It was not unfading. The flower in the fields fade away. As did that land that was an inheritance. But here's good news for us today. God has, called, God has given us a greater inheritance. This inheritance that He gives us is imperishable. That means no enemy can come in and conquer it. It's undefiled, which means it will never be polluted by sin. And it's unfading, which means it will stand the test of time. How long? All of eternity. That's the inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus. No enemy will destroy it. No impurity will corrupt it. And no time will decay it. Praise God for the inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is guaranteed to us. I don't know about you, but when I when I think about this living hope and then this inheritance that God has given me, it it convicts me because so often I wonder if I'm I'm living for an inheritance here. So often I wonder if I'm distracted. I'm distracted from praising God because my eyes aren't fixed on an eternal inheritance kept in heaven for me. My eyes are fixed on things of this world. On the stuff that surrounds me. What about you? Are you praising God for an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you? Or are you enamored with the Shiny, glittery, temporary things of this world. God gives us something far better. Finally, truth number four. Our new life will result in salvation because God is guarding us. Our new life will result in salvation because God is guarding us. A couple of things to think about here. Look at verse five. He says, who... So now he, he's, he's shifted just a little bit. He's talking about the believers, the elect exiles, those of us who have trusted Christ for salvation. He was talking about this, this born-againness, this living hope, this inheritance. And now he's talking about us. He's talking about us as people who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Our new life will result in salvation. Now, maybe some of you are going, but I'm already saved. I already have salvation. And I will say, yes, if you've trusted in Christ, if you've repented of sin and believe what Christ did on the cross was enough to save you, then you have salvation. You are now justified. But in another sense, we haven't fully received that salvation. You say, well, what, what do you mean by that? Well, are you in heaven yet? No. H- have you been finally, once and for all, physically set free from this body of sin? No. We struggle with sin each and every day. Now, my salvation is secure, and so it's right for me to say, I am saved. 
And yet it's just as right for me to say, I will be saved one day. It's the already and not yet tension that we live in. It's the tension that an exile lives in. Remember last week we said that we have a home, but it's not here. It's already ours, but not yet. And that's where often we find it difficult to live as Christians. That's where the Bible calls us to walk by faith and not by sight. Because we're trusting that God will complete this work that he has done in us. This salvation here could be defined as being rescued from God's judgment or wrath on the last day. Listen. Jesus is coming back. As sure as he came the first time, as sure as he went to the cross and as sure as he rose up from the dead and as sure as he ascended back to his father's side, he is coming back. The book of Hebrews says that it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. But then the next verse says this. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins for many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Who are those who are eagerly waiting for him? The elect exiles of verse one. Those who have been sanctified and sprinkled with his blood foreknown by God in verse two. Those who have been born again to a living hope in verse three. Those who have an inheritance that is being kept in heaven with them in verse four. We are those who will be saved in that final day, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. There's that word that we talked about a few minutes ago for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Romans chapter 13, verse 11, Paul says salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Christian, it is near every second of the day. And I can't wait to fully realize the salvation that God has blessed me with. According to His great mercy, I long for that day. And it is guaranteed because look who is guarding us. Just like our inheritance is being kept in heaven, it is God's power that is guarding us through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This word guarded is is a word that's used to putting garrisons in cities to protect it from foes. I love that. That means God is actively shielding off everything that would come in and separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus and You know this, but can I just say it again? He is powerful enough. He is not wanting in power. He is all powerful. If God is the one who is guarding our salvation, we can lay our head down at night in peace. We can face whatever tomorrow brings. Because God is guarding our salvation. And I'll close with just a couple of scriptures. Listen to this. And may it lead you to praise God. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As you wait. For the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I'm not worthy of that. I'm not worthy to be found guiltless. Do you know how unworthy I am of that? I know, I know better than you, but not as good as God, the depth of my sin. I can guarantee you that I am not guiltless, and yet God is guaranteeing that I will be found guiltless in the day of Christ Jesus. And in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Say, Zach, certainly there's something I have to do. What does verse 5 say? Through faith. Through faith. Say, I get all that and all. It's just trusting that God is who he says he is and that he'll do what he says he's going to do. Yes. Yes. But it takes an act of God for us to believe that. Ephesians chapter 2 says that even our faith is a gift from him. And so lest we even, even be tempted to steal any glory from God thinking that our faith is great, Remember the phrase, he has caused us to be born again. Christian, even the faith that you have in God is a gift from God. But what do we do with this? What does Peter say? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. Father, thank you for causing us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us who are being guarded by your power through our faith for a salvation that is ready, it is ready be revealed in the last time. God, we, own, we know that it is only according to your great mercy that this is a reality. Father, there's someone here today who needs to trust in Jesus so that they can be born again. I pray that they would choose to follow Jesus, to repent of their sin, to trust that what he did on the cross is enough, Pay the price for their sin. Father, I pray that as they do that, you would bless them with this great salvation. Father, for those of us who are Christians, convict us of how often, every day, we don't live in praise for you. Convict us of that, Lord. And then restore us as we consider these verses, as we consider the salvation, this new life in Christ, as we consider you.
Father, may we worship you always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.